0: Welcome to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. My guest on today's podcast, calling from um, an area south of Boston, um, near Plymouth, called Halifax, are my friends Cheryl and Evan Smith. Welcome to the podcast, you two. Thank
1: Thanks. you. Glad to be here.
0: Uh, We're going to talk about, in fact, let me just introduce them. I met um, Cheryl and Evan via a Facebook post that Cheryl shared about being an LDS mother of a gay son, and we're going to talk about their journey. Um, They grew up, Cheryl, in the Toronto area, and Evan in Murray, Utah, which is where I live right now. They've lived in the Boston area since 2003, and as I mentioned, they live in Halifax near Plymouth, south of Boston. Evan served his mission in the San Francisco-Oakland area, 1994 through 1996. They both graduated together from BYU in the year 2000. They have been married over 22 years. They were married in the Toronto Temple in 1997. Cheryl is a stay-at-home mom and also operates a horse business. And I'm Facebook friends with both um, Cheryl and Evan, and Cheryl often post these pictures of that business, and I just want to sort of um, escape to some of those places she goes with her horses and, and just the beautiful outdoors and the peace of those posts. Evan is a corporate attorney um, working in Boston, at least pre-COVID. He was working in downtown Boston. Um, they're active LDS and have spent decades um, as part of their service for the church and have helped many come into Christ through our church. Cheryl has been an early morning seminary teacher twice, a young women's president, a stake institute teacher, a primary teacher, a primary president, a Sunday school gospel doctrine teacher, and a nursery leader. And Evan has been a counselor in a young men's program. He's been a ward mission leader, early morning um, stake institute teacher, high counselor, branch president, bishop, seminary teacher, And his most recent assignment was a counselor in a state presidency. They have four kids, two um, boys age 21 and 19, and two girls age 17 and 13. And their oldest son, Weston, is gay. And um, uh, just an outline for the podcast for our listeners, and I think it's helpful to do these outlines. Um, We'll first talk about how Cheryl and Evan became allies. Next section will be Weston's mission. The third section will be serving in the stake presidency. The fourth section will be a painful experience they had with the general authority um, during the time that they were released from the stake presidency. The fifth section is a book that Evan wrote. It's at a website that you can find right now called gayldscrossroads.org. And we're going to talk about that book during the podcast. And we'll give you that website again at the end of the podcast and also talk about the name of the book and they'll talk about where we are now. Um, As I mentioned, this podcast is over the phone. We opened with prayer before we started recording. We just prayed. I pray I've met this couple. I know this couple. They're heroes to me for all the good they've done. And what a great job they're walking this road being parents of a gay son. And I just pray that you will feel their good hearts, their spirit, their insights and their desire to help all of us better meet the needs of LGBTQ Latter-day Saints. Is that okay for a bio, Cheryl and Evan?
2: Yeah, I think that's great. That sums up a little bit about us and who we are.
1: Yeah, I think uh, the only thing I would want to fess up to in all candor and honesty is that— I was only an early morning seminary teacher for six weeks, so I guess while it's in my list of what I've done, uh, that was in between the time I was serving as bishop and got called into the into the state presidency. I don't want to take credit for being doing that job for uh, that's a that's a tough one to do. Uh, I only did it for six weeks, so I want to make sure nobody listening who knows says, "Hey, he wasn't really doing that for too long," because I. Definitely have not done that as long as Cheryl did. She was getting up early for a lot longer. How long years.
0: did, how long did you do that assignment, Cheryl?
2: Um, I did it, uh, I actually had two different callings to do it twice. So I did it once um, when Evan was still in law school, actually, just after we graduated BYU for a year. And then I did another, another year um, just recently, while we were living here. so
0: That's great. Um, thank you. I did it for three months substituting in Wichita, Kansas. So. Or maybe three weeks. I can't remember. It was so long ago. But boy, that was an early assignment. Um, Let's let's talk about um, your journey to become allies. Cheryl, why don't you start first?
2: Okay. Well, as you mentioned in my bio, I um, grew up in the Toronto area. I'm actually a convert to the church. I joined when I was 14. So I guess I didn't have as much of a religious background as um, some of our listeners may have um, had. So I was a little more, um, liberal in my views and, um, upbringing. Um, I had gay teachers at high school, um, many friends who were, um, gay and, uh, also, uh, just a horse world, um, and having, um, horseback riding as a hobby. There were a lot of uh, gay trainers that I was around as well. So I've always been an ally at heart. It's not something that was really hard for me to come to. Um, when I joined the church, obviously, that was something that um, I just thought, well, this is something the church believes, but I don't necessarily um, have to go along with this. I will always kind of, you know, um, be a protector of, of gay rights. So,
1: Yeah. My-
0: go ahead, Evan
1: yeah i my background is a little bit um a little different- a little different i grew up in in utah and had never was taught uh homophobic in the home or or anything like that but just with culture and uh you know, in school, um, kind of developed, I guess I would call it, I became kind of ignorant, ignorantly or unintentionally homophobic. Um, I remember playing games at recess that we called, I'm embarrassed to kind of admit this, but we taught, we called it smear the queer where somebody, somebody somebody would just hold a a ball. And the whole idea was to just chase him down, tackle him. And kick him and try to get him to let go of the ball. Um, there wasn't any points or anything. The whole point was just to inflict pain on whoever was, was acting like that. Um, I remember I, I, you know, I just, I believed a lot of what I had heard in church about, um, at the time, some of the teachings about, you know, how being gay was a sin, uh, being attracted to the same gender was, was, was a sinful, Perversion, things like that, and unfortunately, that kind of impacted a lot of my early adult years. I remember on my mission, I had a bad experience with uh, somebody in San Francisco, a member. Um, I was on a state disciplinary council as as a high counselor and was not as loving as I probably should have been. Um, I didn't do any, didn't say anything hurtful or anything, but I just remember thinking I was surprised. Um, that a member of the church was coming back into the, into the church. And I was ashamed of that. Um, I've reached out since to that brother and talked to him and we've had a, a warm reconciliation. He, he didn't even know how I felt, but it was good to talk to him. And I, I just, I remember teaching as Bishop and in other capacities, maybe like in, in, when we were, when Cheryl and I were Institute teachers together in our stake, just some things that, you know, at the time when I taught them, I didn't think they were, bad, but in hindsight, I realize I, I has not been loving and as kind as I should have been. And, um, yeah, I've had a, I've had a change of heart. So that was kind of the background I, I come from.
0: Um, thanks for sharing both of those. And we're going to hear more of those. And I, my story is very similar to Evan. Um, I just recognized I picked up a lot of things along my life that as I've further reflected and further been willing to learn, I've recognized we wrong and caused pain to others. Um, was, was learning Wes was gay the first, how you first became allies?
2: Um, so actually I suspected that Wes was gay from a kind of a younger age. Um, there would just be things he would do or say that made me as his mom just kind of have those thoughts. Um, and I never shared them publicly. I never even, actually, I never really even shared them with Evan. Um, but periodically through Wes's life, Wes, Evan would actually turn to me and say, do you think Wes is gay? And I, I, knowing that he wasn't really ready to accept that, I would say, no, no, no. I, I think you're just imagining things. Um, so he, but he did have some experience. Wes did have some experiences where he was called, um, certain names on the bus, um, on the bus, he was called a faggot and different things like that. And it became very obvious to me as his mom. Um, that I just had to protect him obviously no matter what um, and he hadn't come out at that point obviously he was still quite young he was actually still in elementary school um, and you know I, I I just wasn't a very homophobic person so to me it, it didn't matter whether he was gay or not um but like I said I kind of had some inkling that he might be so
0: um what about you Evan
1: um I started I guess becoming an ally when um, I had a young man um, come into my office when I was serving as branch president. I actually um, started serving as a branch president from uh, a branch president and bishop from 2011 to 2016 during that five- year period but the, we became a ward in between so I, I had the calling change but um, in 2013 I had a young man come in and he's, he's given me permission to, to talk about this. Um, he came in and was just wondering. He was 14 years old and didn't know um, how to deal with some uh, attractions he was having and didn't even really know how to describe what he was experiencing. Um, this is a, a kid I had seen grow up um, since primary and I knew... His heart, and what an amazing, just an amazing young man he was. And I, I didn't know how to. Uh, I had no idea how to respond. Um, I remember the first interview I had with him. I just told him that I, I loved him, and that I would like to talk to him again. Um, and met with him over the course of, I don't know, probably that first year, a few, several times. Um, and in between every time I met with them, I was doing a ton of research because I didn't, I didn't know. I hadn't really spent more than, you know, maybe a couple hours my whole life really thinking about what it meant to be, uh, to 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 be attracted to someone of the same gender or to have, you know, any anything other than a very heteronormative uh, context for, for my life or for anyone else's life that I knew. I had never known anybody who was gay personally, Um, and so I I went on a, studied a ton of what the science was saying about it, um, studied what the church's position was, and I think in a couple years before then, in 2011, the church had published a, a website um where i was able to look that was back then it was mormonsandgays.org and and now it's it's just the website that's under the church's uh gospel topic section called same-sex attraction but on that site, i i saw that same-sex attraction wasn't a choice and that was kind of news to me the church was actually saying that and teaching that Um, i learned about the science that taught that that it's not a choice that um you know you can be born gay. And I remember um, coming across the materials uh, that William Bradshaw, who's a professor of microbiology at BYU had taught. Um, there's a really good video um, that I, I include uh, some links to in my in my book um, where, where he clearly lays out that it's, it's nature, not nurture, um, and discusses at length the scientific Uh, explanations for uh, gay sexual orientation. And then I also learned about the psychological harm. So taking all of psychological harm that comes from uh, being in a conservative uh, religion that teaches uh, that gay sexual behavior is sinful, um, gay marriage is sinful, that I learned about all those things, uh, as I was desperately trying to figure out how to talk to this young man and how to advise him. And, um, you know, I, I, am kind of jealous. Cheryl intuitively gets things a little better than I do. I need to spend my time kind of figuring out and studying and, and coming to, to, to realize it, but she just instinctively gets so much more than I do. And I came to the conclusion, um, that I, I needed to just counsel this young man um, to not feel guilty about his, you know, whatever he was feeling. Uh, but I felt really, really torn about it um, because I didn't know what to tell him to do with his life. You know, being single in the church is one thing. There, there's two choices that, that I saw that he had to be single forever, uh, be, be chaste, celibate um or to enter into a mixed orientation marriage uh, where he, he marries a you know someone that you may not be attracted to um and I saw all of that as th- those choices are hard um I, I, I've come to learn now that the statistics for you know mixed orientation marriage I think around 70% end up getting divorced. Um, the church doesn't advise though that, that people enter into those, um, unless there's a genuine attraction. So probably only if you're, you know, bisexual, you, you do that. Um, and being, being single for your whole life, it, it's different if you're a straight single and you have hope that you can eventually get married, but being a gay single in the church means you proactively avoid falling in love and you don't have the hope that you'll ever get married. And then you have to look forward after this life to never being with, you know, to, to having your orientation uh, change or, or being alone and not, not knowing if you'll be with your family. There's, there's so many question marks that are over the head of, of someone who's trying to deal with that in the church. And so I was, I was very torn. I, I advised uh, this young man to, to obviously stay in the church. Because um, I felt as a bishop, I, I needed to do that. Um, he subsequently went on and served a mission, and he's still active in the church. He's he's amazing. Um, but I, I, I was I just was really beat up and had a hard time thinking about, um, you know, what, what, it, what it would mean for him going forward.
0: Um, I love your good heart there. Um, I think it's very, very helpful. Just both of your journey to try to understand and your willingness. You're a lawyer, I think a partnered lawyer, Evan. And sometimes at that point in our life, we sort of want to have all the answers and have everything sort of pretty hard, hardened within us, but your ability to maybe follow your wife's example of, of being willing to learn and set aside past assumptions. And even though she does it intuitively, you do it analytically. I think that led both of you to have better understanding of LGBTQ members. Um, when did West come out to you?
2: So he actually came out to us about two years after this young man had um, come into Evan's office and talked to Evan. Um, this young man wasn't the only person that came to Evan while he was serving as bishop, um, you know, to talk about. Uh, same sex attraction and um things like that. So but we really I I, I just want to kind of um personally think that that young man really opened the door I think for Evan's heart to change and um because we all just love him so much um and our congregation wouldn't be the same without him. I think it really led Evan into this path where he, you know, started doing that research and the necessary work and it really opened the door for Wes. Um So he came out, West had come out to us, um, in 2015, um, kind of the fall of 2015. Um, we had noticed for a couple years or maybe at least a year before that, he just wasn't, didn't seem like himself. He was more moody, very depressed, very withdrawn. Um, you know, as parents, sometimes it's hard, obviously teenagers are hard to begin with. Um, so we we felt like we didn't know really how to help him or what his issues were. He wasn't very forthcoming with us. And he's always been a a more introverted person. He's not very extroverted at all. So when he came to us, um, you know, it it, it was almost a relief because then we kind of figured out why he had been the way he had the year previously, Um, just being so withdrawn and moody and upset, um, depressed. And he was, he admitted to us, he was actually suicidal as well. And I don't really want to dwell on that. I feel like that's, you know, his personal journey and, um, don't want to go into details about that, but once he came out to us, it was, he was much better. I think just having that weight lifted off him. And of course we told him that we'd love him and support him no matter what, and just wanted him to be open with us so that we could get him any help he needed or give him the support he wanted. Um, so I think, um, you know, that was obviously important. Um uh, And then he also less, had gone through kind of a period of trying to have gr- a girlfriend. And it was very short lived. Um, And that's obviously before he came out to us. And we kind of wondered what happened because it went badly so quickly. <laughs> um, And now looking back on it, I, I can see why it just didn't work. I think they were more friends first and um friends afterwards, actually, too. But just uh the romantic connection just didn't work for Wes. So um, but just it was just such a sense of relief when he finally came out to us and we just could could really be open with him. Um, the the hard thing was that he asked us to keep it just between Evan and I. So we were the only ones that knew that he was gay at that point. And so that 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 was a little challenging, but um Evan, you wanna
1: Yeah. Um I guess some background uh on west coming out to us it was something that he i think had, had thought about doing quite a bit before uh you know we we have always had a good relationship with him and all our kids um but i you know over the years i think he'd heard me say some things about um sorry um had me say some negative things in the home about uh, gay people and he knew I was serving as bishop, and I think there was a lot of fear there uh, to to be open with us. Um, so I'm so grateful that I had that experience two years previously counseling that young man that opened my heart. And I remember um, in June of 2015, obviously, the U.S. Supreme Court legalized gay marriage and, or I guess I should say, uh, legalized marriage equality, a <laughs> better, better way to say that, um, and the First Presidency he sent out a letter to all of the congregations throughout the church asking bishops and branch presidents to read a statement talking about how the church's doctrine hadn't changed. Um, and I took that opportunity to uh, have a, a third hour, this is back when we had you know three hours at church, uh, have a special combined young men, young women's Relief Society Melchizedek Priesthood third hour lesson on, um, this, uh, statement from the first presidency. And I, I, took that as an opportunity to read the, from the church's website as well, which talks about how we need to love better and how we need to include L- our LGBT uh, brothers and sisters more than we are. And, and how it's, you know, being uh, gay is not a choice, uh, acting on on it is, but being being gay is not. And there was all of that information on the website that I, I figured a lot of the members of the ward uh, maybe didn't know about uh, because I hadn't known about it until I started researching it a couple of years previously. And I viewed this as an opportunity to um, help this young man feel loved um, from the ward because I knew at some point he'd be coming out, um, as everyone does. And I don't know, I, I I don't want to say, um, you know, that I I don't, he he doesn't, I I don't know if he identifies in in any one particular way. And so I don't want to speak for his identity, but I, I knew that there, you know, it's, it's just impossible to have, to go throughout your whole life without this, um, you know, I just, I knew he'd be, I knew it'd be it was, something would become public at some point. So I wanted him to feel loved. And I spoke to, uh, the first presidency's message that the doctrine hadn't changed for, you know, that took about five minutes to read that statement and, and have a brief discussion about it. And then we took about, you know, 30 plus minutes or 40 minutes talking about, uh, how it's not a choice, how we need to love better, how we need to accept everyone, and um, you know, I didn't know at the time that my own son was sitting in the audience listening to me say those things. And it was just a couple of months after that where he felt the courage that he could finally come talk to us and let us know that he was gay also. So I was uh, grateful for the experience and feeling of uh, just the, you know, that guidance um, in our lives that helped, helped that happen.
0: That brought a little bit of tears to my eyes as both of you shared that. And I look at those as just parenting home run situations where, at Evan, I mean, sorry, Weston had a chance to come out um, and felt safe coming out to both of you. But the principle that both of you are sharing is that if you say kind things about all of Heavenly Father's children, you signal to your own kids. Um, that they're safe to talk to us as parents, whether they're LGBTQ or working on something or, and it just allows us to get on the road as parents. And I love that you sense that Evan, I mean, sorry, Weston was, there was something up with Weston um, with, and then as he was able to come out and felt safe coming out to you, then all these dots kind of connected, especially in your mother heart, Cheryl, where you sense something was going on here. So, There's so many principles that apply to just good parenthood. Um, I love, Evan, that you took the chance in that third hour to talk about the church's website. Um, I taught that same third hour as a YSA bishop, and I didn't do that. I wish I had, um, because there is a lot of information there that I wasn't aware of, and many of our members aren't. And I love what you did there. So let's go on to the next segment. Talk about Weston's mission.
2: Um, okay, so Weston, um, because I came out to us kind of that was his junior year of high school. Um, and of course, um, this was already in the the age where missionaries were allowed to go, um, young men were allowed to serve right after high school. Um, West kind of has a later birthday, he's his birthdays in June. So he's a kind of a younger, um, younger for his grade. And He, um, always, um, you know, just loves, um, learning different cultures and languages and had a real gift for that and hoped that by going on a mission, maybe he would be able to kind of further, um, you know, um, get, have another adventure that way, but then also just really had a deep desire to serve God and figure out who he was and, um, just, um, also just, you know, form a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so he decided that he wanted to go right after high school, um, you know, submit his papers for hopefully to leave that summer right after high school um and, and serve a mission. Um at this point he still wasn't out publicly. He had come out to me and Evan, to my sister and her husband, and to um two of our closest family friends. Um, he had also told um, our state president at the time um, when he was in for the interviews to go on his mission. Um, so his mission call came and he was called to the um, Curitiba um, Brazil mission. Um, and we were ecstatic because that was just, he was so excited to be called somewhere where he was going to experience a different um, culture and language and was just excited to kind of have a couple years to figure out who he was, what his relationship with God was and just kind of, um, you know, not have to worry about just the, um, other things that us adults all have to worry about jobs and relationships and all that sort of stuff. So, um, so he was super excited. When we opened the call, um, we were all excited. Um, he left for Curitiba in, um, Um, it was supposed to be the end of September, but because he spoke Spanish so well, they had him actually go, um, in October. So he left and went to the Brazil MTC in October. Um, he, um, some other, some missionaries in the MTC, um, found out he was gay. Um, and he would write to us just saying that it would, the MTC experience was super hard for him, um. He got teased a lot. He was ostracized. Um, But it just made him more determined to um, study the language and to kind of be like throw himself into study and just be the best Portuguese speaker he could possibly be. Um, So when he finally got to Curitiba, um, the mission president, um, ironically, was neighbors with Evan's sister in Utah. And so knew um, his sister very well. And uh, sent, um, I guess the mission president's wife actually sent Evan's sister a little email saying that Les was the best-speaking Portuguese—well, best um, Portuguese-speaking uh, well, Portuguese missionary that they had had— Non-native, come, yeah. yeah. non-native, um, that they had had come to the mission, um, and they were just blown away by his language skills so early, you know, after only four weeks in the MTC. Um, so he just was loving that. Um, and even though, like I said, those missionaries in the MTC were pretty mean to him, he was lucky. He had a great mission, um, compa- first mission companion trainer who was really great um, to him. And then also uh, his mission president was really, really
1: yeah.
2: empathetic and understanding. We're really grateful for that, that he had such a great experience because of this mission president. Yeah.
1: Mission president mission, and, and mission president's wife, they were fantastic.
2: So, um, I think I did worry. Um, I guess I should also talk about that as his mom, I, I, I did really worry about him on the mission. I actually begged him kind of not to go just because I, um, I knew it was going to be hard. I knew it was hard for him while he was at home. So I couldn't imagine him being away and having no one to turn to or no one to talk to, um, and dealing with kind of, um, again, the homophobia that I knew was going to come with, um, you know, from certain companions. And I, I at that point, we didn't know what his mission president was going to be like, and, you know, the members and different things. Um, so I had a really hard time. As a mom, it was, I know it's hard to send a kid off, but it was extra hard, I think, for us. And again, no one, none of our friends and family members knew about this at that point, except for the select, you know, four other people that he had told before he left. So it was a struggle, it was really hard. Um, I worried about him um, hurting himself. I worried about him being too depressed and maybe not getting the help he needed. Um, but he always assured me that he was doing fine. Um, but then I guess I'll let Evan talk a little more about, he always kind of presented two different fronts, a different front for me, and then kind of was more open with Evan about what he was actually feeling. Cause I think he knew it would just worry me to death um, if I knew what he was actually, enduring um so yeah. i'll kind of turn that over to evan but he
1: would write uh, he had he had me and cheryl's sister lisa and uh, a close friends of ours um gordon who's, a, who's just a really good like a we, we joke he's he's like a like weston's second dad um he would write the three of us and let us know how he was struggling um you know he struggled with Things he'd hear members and missionaries say he struggled with uh his patriarchal blessing that said he'd marry a girl. He struggled with uh, you know, scriptures. And he would send me some of the most amazing analytical scriptural um thoughts on his situation that I just was blown away with. His spiritual maturity was so far beyond where I was when I went on my mission. Um, and he had such an amazing testimony and just knew um, that God loved him and didn't know how to reconcile what uh, the church's teachings were with what he was seeing in the scriptures and and with the, you know other things that, that he knew in his heart. So it was it was hard to to get those messages um, where I, I heard him struggling so much, and especially because you know shortly after he left. About six months in, I think I, I continued doing my research and everything, and I came across a study done by uh, Brian Simmons at the University of Georgia. Uh, it was done, it was released in 2017, which was the same, you know, West Left on his mission October 2017, and in that study, it was done by yeah, a bunch of uh, LGBTQ Latter-day Saints, and it showed... I was reading and it showed that over 73% of those participants uh, in that study reported trauma and multiple PTSD symptoms, uh, and 89% reported at least one PTSD symptom from repeated exposure to, to basic teachings of the church about sexuality, gender, marriage, and family. Um, you know, that wasn't Trauma or PTSD that's self-diagnosed, but it was shown through clinical methods. Uh, the majority of those respondents were active members, and 31% held temple recommends. So when I came across that um study, I I just was wondering what context I had sent my son into um on his mission. And we worried every week he was out. Uh, I never told him to come home. I never wanted to make his decision for him. And he he wouldn't let me make his decision for him he's he, he knew what he was doing and he had developed an ability to be aware of trauma inducing things in his life um and it was about you know 18 months in he uh heard a talk by elder anderson in the april 2019 uh general conference where elder anderson referenced some um gay member of the church who uh was happy to live by his covenants and be uh chaste and celibate and you know live alone his whole life and west heard that and, and and i'm sure Wes would tell a different version of this story so i don't want to you know tell tell a story for him but he's he heard that and and wrote to me that he felt like if he could just pray to heavenly father and put it on the altar that he would live his life alone forever um that's what God wanted him to do, that he would do it. He would make that sacrifice. And he was hundred percent willing to do that. And, um, the impression that came very strongly and clearly to his mind was, uh, I don't want that for you. Um, and so that was Weston's answer. And he made a decision, uh, then to come home. Uh, so he, he served a total of 19 months of his mission um, we were relieved that he was coming home. I was serving in the state presidency. I've been in the state presidency for almost two years at that point, a little over maybe, maybe 19 no, months. You were
2: called part. just after, um, he left actually. The week yeah. After so I guess,
1: year. yeah, we got, yeah. So I guess I was in for 19 months. Um, when, when that happened and, uh, you know, we talked about, I remember writing him and, 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 Helping him feel comforted about things. I remember writing him a a letter and saying or an email and saying that His decision reminded me of the decision, you know that people in the scripture had made Um, I think there's an analogy of Nephi getting an answer to You know kill Laban for the golden plate or for the brass plates Um, It was something that went against typical church or typical gospel teachings, but was necessary for other reasons I don't really like that example. I've come to not like that because choosing to live to your identity, who you are, and to pursue a marriage uh, that's going to have the best chance to be long-lasting, to have a partner that you're attracted to, um, that's not the equivalent of of killing someone. So I, I come to analogize it more to kind of what Adam and Eve did, where they were given a commandment and and broke it so that they could have a family. And I think that's very similar to what Wes went through uh, and, and the very similar kind of spiritual experience that, that he had. Um, and I, you know, again, I, I just was thinking so much about the the dichotomy and the, the just the bind that that LGBT members of the church are in um, and wishing that a revelation was more dependent on by by members of our church because i knew coming home a lot of people wouldn't understand what the situation and i i think we as members of the church can do a better job of thriving on personal revelation but a lot of times we don't we you know we look to the general authorities or to other people leaders to to give us answers and i have come to realize that their authority is is wider than mine um that they have more uh, stewardship over a number of people and, and coming having revelation for that but it's it's not superior. Um, that's something I've learned in talking with uh, a friend here Derek Knox who's a member of the church. he's a trained biblical theologian he has a podcast called Beyond the Block, which I think you've mentioned on your podcast here before Richard but um, you know talking to him about things he was he, bat- he was baptized as a member of the church in 2015 a uh, month after, or maybe even a week after the uh, policy that said that uh, children of gay couples couldn't be baptized. Um, And he uh, just has taught me so many things, but that's one of the things I've learned from him is that the general authorities are amazing leaders and great people, but their authority is not uh, superior to any authority of any member of the church to receive revelation. It's it's wider, but not superior. That, that That was definitely what happened with Les.
0: I love that. Um, it's a pretty tender segment. Um, some of our listeners got tears in their eyes as they feel your good hearts. I just love the fact that you are walking this road with your missionary son and that he feels safe opening up to you and that you are letting himself determine his path in life. And, um, it's just a beautiful family love story that's occurring, even though it's in a context of a difficult mission experience at time and, um, I, I, and I love um, what you're talking about, general authority, authority. I think sometimes culturally in our church, we believe that if we just will get better advice, the further up the chain we get, if we can get past our bishop to the stake president, get past the stake president to the area authority, 70 to a general authority, we can to get better personal advice or better insight to the decisions we need to make. But I really agree with what you're teaching that you know, there is really smart people that can give very helpful, but at the end of the day, personal revelation from our heavenly parents for our path is really where I think we need to be. And I think some of the brethren are uncomfortable with the same thing you talked about, Evan. I think they're wanting, I think Elder Holland in particular really wants us to move to what you're talking about. Um, And I think when he shifted to ministering from home teaching, that was part of um, kind of leaving this checkbox, tell me what to do mentality. And really live a whole higher, holier law. Um, let's keep moving though. Um, what was it like for Wes when he came early from home from his mission?
2: Okay, well, I guess in some ways it was kind of a relief to us because he was finally ready to come out to everyone at that point. Um, we told He knew that by coming home early, we were gonna need to tell people why he was coming home early. Um, as Evan mentioned, he'd been serving in the state presidency and was, you know, first counselor in the state presidency at that point. So um, although I would really like for our family just to kind of live under a rock, we were not living under a rock um, because of that calling. Um, so we he gave us permission to call um, or talk to um, most of our close family, friends, and of course our extended family, all our siblings and our parents. Um, And I have to say, um, I really underestimated um, the good, um, kind people we have in our life. I thought that it was going to be a a horrible experience having to tell people about Wes and, um, you know, his choice to come home early to basically, you know, he he wants a different path in life than what the church is presenting. but we were, um, everyone was very loving, very supportive. Um, at least outwardly to us, they were. Maybe inside, they were, you know, questioning it or whatever. But we had a great outpouring of love from um, our congregation. Um, our families were great. Some of them flew from Utah and um, came from Toronto to be here for Wes's homecoming. Um, it, w- it was a really good experience, and actually, you know, um, it, 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 its its um, i am ashamed to admit that n- now looking back on it, that I—I I doubted um, anyone because they just were. Everyone was so great to us, um, and you know, great to Wes when Wes finally got home too. So um, it was a—it was a good experience, and like I said, finally we were able to tell people um, and be open about Wes being gay. And that was just kind of a huge, um, huge, uh, burden off our shoulders. I guess something I just realized that we haven't talked about, but his siblings knew that he was gay from the beginning, basically almost after he came right. out too. we should have mentioned that, um, right. in case everyone's wondering if this is when his siblings knew they've known all along. They've known since basically Wes came out in 2015 that he was gay and they, you know, kept that secret for him. Cause again, none of us felt it was our place to out him that that was for him to do in his time. Um, so he had, he did a great homecoming talk. Um, uh, he was great, he's happy. Um, th- the only catch was he kind of had come home and he had um, applied to BYU and been accepted before his mission and deferred. Um, and then he kind of had decided obviously that maybe BYU wasn't gonna be the right path for him given that he wanted to start dating and, um, looking for, a, um, you husband. know, a husband. So, um, he, you know, he, um, was able to apply and get into a different, um, a different school, which he's still attending now. And that's been a great experience for him. Um, he's still very Christian, believes in Christ. It's a wonderful person, um, but has chosen again, not to s- stay active in the church is kind of just, um, Evan and I like to say like walking alongside the covenant path, I guess. Um, just again, because the church, he wants to be, he doesn't just want to come and sit on Sundays. He wants to be able to be fully active in whatever church he's going to attend. Um, and so he's, since he's been at school, he's, you know, had lots of opportunities to go with other friends who are Christian to other uh, religious um, religious ceremonies and different um, um, churches and churches. Um, he's just had a great experience, um, making friends that are not LDS, but also, you know, good Christian people. So, um, that are, um, I would say more supportive of his chosen lifestyle than what, um, many of the LDS, um, of the LDS faith would be. So, um, but we're really happy for him. He's just finally happy and kind of come into his own and figuring out his, um, you know, his own life path kind of, um, outside of the church. So
0: did, um, his decision to come home from his mission, um, was that concurrent with his feeling that he was going to step away from the church? And did he communicate both, uh, both of those steps at the same time, or was there a, or did it come later?
2: Um, so I think it was concurrent. He basically had got his, um, when he received that answer that, you know, that's not what God wanted for him was to stay, um, you know, he was willing to sacrifice that he was willing to stay celibate and just live alone and, um, be active in the church. And when he prayed intently, he got the answer to his prayer that that's not what God wanted for him. So I think basically coming home, he knew at that point that his path was going to be again, alongside the church, the covenant path, but not in the church. And, um, other than, you know, dating, um, people of the same gender, he really still lives a very, um, I would say Mormon life where it doesn't drink, doesn't smoke, doesn't party, doesn't, you know, do anything. Um, still, like I said, still believes in Christ, um, does all those things, um, that a normal, uh, Mormon LDS person would do, which just, like I said, the key aspect is he just wants a family in life. So.
0: Before I stepped in this space, it was always hard for me to kind of wrap my head around someone who received personal revelation that was sort of outside of church teachings. And I've learned just to, you know, my personal revelation doesn't give me the right or the ability to um, understand or assess or um, somebody else's personal revelation. And so I've learned, obviously, like you have, is just to honor your good son's personal revelation. And... Um, I love, I mean, I get pretty tender-hearted here, but what a great time to receive that personal revelation. He's out there, consecrated missionary, giving everything to help people come into Christ. He's been there 18 months um, through some really, really hard times that have stretched him and probably brought him closer to heavenly his heavenly parents and the atonement. And what a beautiful time for heavenly parents to give him a feeling about his direction and then I think we do what you do is we just honor that personal revelation we support. Um, And then I love this visual of walking alongside the covenant path that he's doing the very best he can and you're supporting him. I, I do remember that you sent me his homecoming talk. I've never met your son. I've never talked to him, but I remember the power of that homecoming talk and the laser focus on bringing people to Christ and, the love that he has for Christ. And I thought there is a young man that's anchored in the things that are important that will keep him um, with the foundation. that will help him to have a beautiful life. Um, let's talk about serving in the state presidency. Um, how are you feeling about the church when he came home?
2: Okay. Um, so <laughs> uh, I, as we kind of uh, talked a little bit about earlier, Evan was called into the state presidency. I think it was the week or two after Weston left on his mission. Um, and we had a good experience when Evan was called. Um, I was a little apprehensive. Um, I remember meeting um, with the general authority who was extending the call to Evan. And I said, I was nervous because I didn't want our family to be judged and that I was nervous about um you know, just kind of having our family up there on a the pedestal per se. I, I hate using that, but just, I guess more of a, you know, more out there for people to to look to and judge one way, either good or bad. Um, and so I, I was nervous about it, but we had a really good experience. Um, that general authority basically said that we were getting called to the calling because of our family and that he felt like we could really make um, a good change Um in people's lives within our stake, um, and ward and, um, you know, um, thought Evan would do a great job just being able to help people come onto Christ. And, um, he, um, we think I mean, he,
1: we think he probably knew that Wes was there yeah. because the stake president who's just barely sent Wes on his mission knew. And, um, just some of the things that that general authority said to us in our interview seemed he never came out and talked about it specifically, which was appropriate. Like did there was no need to, um, mm-hmm. but it just seemed like, you know, we talked about change in the church and when changes happen and um, it was just kind of random topics that he was bringing up that made us feel like he knew.
2: Yeah. And we felt like we had figured out at that point how to serve um, in the church. Um, you know, and it's not like, like, again, we both had kind of larger callings that require a lot of time and attention and um we figured we we had figured that out how to like still support our son, but also still serve the church and still um, you know, be in line with what the church taught and such. Um so it I would say it was a good experience um for Evan to have that calling, but I did worry. So when Wes finally told us he was coming home and we knew that he was coming home early, um, I did worry a little bit about um as um i think most well maybe not all your uh, listeners know but you know there was still the required if someone has a homosexual relationship they're um required to go through a disciplinary council on the stake level if you've you know obviously been through the temple
1: that's what it was back then yep
2: and um i was worried that if weston chose to do that that Evan would have to be on that disciplinary council. and that just as a mom just tore me up and I, I just couldn't stop thinking about that sort of thing. Um, we had um, but we did have good experiences, I guess while Evan was serving to be able to kind of open um, open up doors for more um, being more open about LGBTQ issues or um, uh, that current state, the state president that Evan served with was amazing. He let, um, you know, we did a lot of question and answer firesides for the youth. Of course, the LGBTQ topic always comes up when you're talking with the youth. I think the youth today are very in tune and interested in that topic, and we were allowed to answer a lot of their questions. Um, Evan gave a couple talks in state conference that were very church-friendly, um, but that still acknowledged that you know it's really hard to be LGBTQ and be in the church. Um, so all those things, um, you know, we're, we're good. Um, the only thing I would say is it's much, in my opinion, um, it's much harder to have, um, to be a leader, um, in the church and to have a child who is openly LGBTQ. Um, I think that people then, I shouldn't say people, leaders, are harder on you because they worry that you might um, kind of almost tip your hand like show your hand um, with how your heart it's hard because you have to um mock the line doctrinally but then your heart sometimes is maybe leading you in a different direction and i think that in my observation the church leaders um have a harder time. I th- I think if you're in a leadership position, it's a, it's a little bit harder than if you have a child that's like that. And of course, obviously everyone in the stake or war and or ward is kind of looking to you um as an example for everyone else. So it can get hard, I think. Um, but I was really We were feeling pretty positive when he came home, just how things were going. And like I said, had figured it out and, you know, just kind of wanted to carry on. Um, Yeah.
1: Our state president was awesome. He's a great, great guy. Um, And just let Wes come home honorably and loved him. And it was a great, it was a great uh, experience when he came home. And the whole time serving the state presidency was good. Like Cheryl said, I had a a chance to give a, a talk in the state conference that, was about not just LGBT, but about just helping people who are, are, are reasons why people leave the church and um, trying to just be better ministers to, uh, to everybody who's struggling in whatever way and just love them. And, and that's what it kind of was, was the focus on. And that was a great opportunity to do those sort of things. So we were, we were doing really well um, when, when Wes came home.
0: Let's talk about um, being released in the stake presidency. Let me ask a question here. Your time in the stake presidency wasn't as long as normal. You are released after two years, just a few months after West came home. It's normally a nine-year calling. Um, you feel it's good to talk about what happened. Why? Yeah,
2: so I guess um, we... It's just such a pivotal moment for us in our, our journey as allies that we feel like it's important to talk about. Um, so at the reason Evan was released early from this calling was um, our state president at the time was moving. And so of course um, that means that the whole state presidency has to be reorganized. And the process for that, I'm, I'm, I I'm think most of your um, listeners would know, but basically um, everyone is interviewed um, the whole state presidency and also, um, members of the, um, high council and such are interviewed and asked, you know, who they feel should be the new state president. And then the visiting general authorities, uh, you know, um, pray about it and choose a new state president. So, um, that's what happened, um, obviously with, um, in late September. Um, so Evan um, was obviously interviewed, um, by that, the, the visiting general authorities. Um, he, um, so a morning he, interview, yeah, morning yeah. interview, like everybody,
1: um, all the other men who were interviewed,
2: mm-hmm, morning interview. And then, um, we were told to, you know, ha- he was told to have his phone on the ready until 2 PM. Um, and 2 p.m. came and went, and he did not get a phone call. So we thought, okay, well, he's just been released, and a new president has been called, and, you know, we can just kind of go on back to being sitting in our, our pews of, you know, our Plymouth Ward. Um, but then, I think it was about 2.15, we got a call from our outgoing state president saying, you and Cheryl need to come back to the building. Um, so we we were actually at the grocery store, and we Paid quickly for the items we had in our grocery cart and drove back up to the stake center. Um we um were each um separated into different rooms. And I met with one general authority and Evan met with the other. Um the general authority I met with, um, the interview was very brief and the same kind of questions they had asked me when they originally called Evan as a counselor in the state presidency, just um you know, basic things about his um personality, his um, you know, uh, of course I had to say what how good natured he was and all that sort of stuff. Um but um they had told me he told me in my interview that a new state president had been called and that you know they were basically calling Evan um as a counselor in the state presidency again. Um so I went back out to the hall after being with maybe 10 minutes with the general authority that interviewed me to make sure that everything, um, Evan was worthy. I was supportive, that sort of stuff, just the regular kind of interview. Um, and when I got back out to the hall, um, I was in the hall for about an hour waiting while Evan was in the room with the general authority that was interviewing him. Um, now uh, normally maybe I, wouldn't have thought, wow, this is taking a long time. But um, it was, there was another meeting, a leadership meeting happening that um, both of them were supposed to speak in. And the outgoing state president kindly knocked on, you know, knocked on the door, was told just to start the meeting and go ahead, um, and then close the door again. And so I, I was starting to worry about why things might be taking so long, why his Um, interview had kind of turned into an hour versus mine that was 10 minutes. Um, Which is normally normally it's only like
1: 5 or 10 minutes to to do a pre a pre-screened about if someone's worthy or not to receive a calling uh, and then you normally invite you're, you're absolutely supposed to invite the spouse into that meeting to actually issue the calling so cheryl was expecting to be invited into our, our meeting, I and mean, this was the second time this happened we went through this experience 19 months earlier uh-huh. um so instead of expecting to come into the meeting uh it, instead of coming in as she expected right when she got done with her interview um she had to wait for over an hour after was, mm-hmm. and and I was you know not sitting on the stand in that other meeting that was happening at the same time and wow people knew what was going really on unusual. Some, some, yeah very very public
2: yeah yeah and so um I had probably every worst case scenario running through my mind while I waited in the hall because I knew it was abnormal to take over an hour for this sort of interview especially given both men were supposed to be speaking in the the, uh, meeting that had, you know, was going on. Um, so I, I guess in my gut, I knew what it was about. I knew that it was about Wes. Um, or I, I had a feeling, um, let's just say that I, I had a feeling it was about Wes and that's where, um, I guess the weekend kind of of fell apart from there. Um, so I'll let Evan maybe talk about what happened in that meeting.
1: Yeah. So, I started my meeting with the general authority um, that afternoon. You know, this is the second time I'd met with with him. The first meeting in the morning was with both of them, and then this was my was meeting with this uh, general authority alone. Um, you know, he said at the very outset of the of the discussion that I he knows I'd been through a lot of challenges, and I I didn't in the, in the last year, and I didn't know what exactly he was referencing. Um, and so then he said he, he knew about Wes's decision to come home early from his mission um and i and i asked him if he knew why and he said he did um so i you know he he had learned from that i guess over the course of the day maybe from some other brethren that he talked to but he clearly wanted to talk about that experience um and so i i started to open up and just tell him how i felt about it and you know i i had come to at that point view Wes being gay about the same way that I view someone being left-handed, and I don't want to say that in a way that seems trite, but um, you know the the biological process by which science is showing that someone becomes left-handed is is somewhat similar developmentally to how someone becomes, you know, is gay. You there's a combination of, of a genetic factor and what they call an epigenetic factor, which means uh, there's environmental, uh, you know, chemicals, steroids, hormones, things in, in, in the womb that affect uh, how someone uh, comes, you know, what their handedness is. It's about 25%, I think, uh, inherited genetic thing and about 75% an epigenetic thing. And so I, interestingly, it's about the same thing with, with uh, sexual orientation. It's determined 25% or so by inherited genetics and about 75% or so. It always varies, I guess, per individual, but by what happens in the womb from an epigenetic perspective, where gene expression is changed or modified um, by that. So I, I, I got to the point where I thought, I just view Wes as, you know, living his life and doing his thing because of this way he was born, and this is what he he needs to decide. And I knew that the church was causing him harm. I knew that those church teachings from the studies I had read and other things that it was not good for Wes to be in the church. And so I was actually, coming into that meeting, I was I was happy that Wes had decided uh, to, to pursue a husband. I, I wanted him to have that type of family life. And I... I told the general authority that I told him that I, I felt fine with Wes leaving. Um, and over the course of our conversation, um, he said some things that were really hurtful. Uh, I, 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 is it okay, Richard, if I read a little bit from no, my be, book? Cause I,
0: that'd be great. All
1: right. I came home from that meeting. Um, Cheryl and I, after that, after that hour meeting, I came home and, and we had to actually left the church building because of some of the things that were said. Um, and we came home and I wrote down what he said. Now I've, I've cleaned up my notes and, and put it into the book. But um, here are the, some of the things. He said, I shouldn't be happy that Wes decided to leave the church because sin of any kind is not justified. Basically, sinning is sinning. I told him I felt as Wes's father knows him well, and I'm aware of what he's gone through over the past three years that Wes had the choice to either stay in the church and be depressed, possibly suicidal, or leave the church and be mentally happy, mentally healthy. The general authority said he didn't believe those were the only options, because other gay people have chosen to be lifelong celibates and are happy in the church. I told him that solution didn't work for most gay people, since the vast majority of them leave the church and feel traumatized by church teachings. Regardless of whether it worked for others, it wasn't working for Wes. General authority also drew an analogy between the feelings a parent can have when a child leaves the church to commit crimes and the feelings he imagined I might be having because Wes had left the church to date other men. I think he was trying to help me understand that many parents have kids who leave the church for a variety of reasons. When I said, as politely as I could, that the difference between those two situations was that a gay, re- gay relationships didn't cause harm to any third parties, he said that wasn't always the case because gay couples can cause harm by raising children in their homes. I told him that studies showed no meaningful difference in the well-being of children raised by gay parents versus those raised by straight parents, and no greater likelihood to be LGBTQ than other kids either. He said he knew of studies that showed otherwise, so it was an open question. So we had a bit of a debate on that, and I went back and forth with him on how I knew there was just overwhelming evidence that gay parents uh, were not harmful at all. Um, I'll keep reading here. Then, uh, when I asked if it was possible that God directed West through personal revelation to pursue his own path as a unique exception to the church's prohibition against gay marriage, he said he doubted West received such direction because people can often feel as if they have received divine revelation for whatever they want. If they want it badly enough. He also said he didn't believe West could have received direction like that because God doesn't give conflicting commandments. I questioned that rationale by discussing examples of God giving conflicting commandments to various people in the scriptures. I specifically mentioned Nephi and Laban, but was also thinking of Adam and Eve, Abraham and Isaac, etc. He wouldn't admit the possibility of an exception, but the general authority did concede that there are times when God allows circumstances that only he can understand. He then postulated that God may not condemn some gay people for choosing to be in gay relationships because they may not have complete control over their behavior and speculated that they could have diminished individual agency similar to a long time abuse victim who may have instinctive physical defense responses they can't control when placed in triggering situations. He acknowledged that was not a perfect analogy because gay sexual orientation isn't a mental illness or a result of abuse, But he thought it was still helpful to explain that only God can know someone's capacity to live in a certain way and that we therefore need to just have hope that the Savior will work everything out somehow. He also said many times over the course of our conversation that the law of chastity would never change and that church leaders can't change it because it is of God. I asked him what he thought about the prior changes in the law of chastity in the church from monogamy to polygamy and then back to monogamy. And he said that line of thought that the law of chastity changed before and so could change again was the argument of the LGBTQ rights movement as the opposition used to confuse people. I told him I didn't like saying opposition in reference to the LGBTQ rights movement. He randomly mentioned at one point that the church is expecting to be pressured by the government and other forces to do gay marriages in temples and to allow gay couples to show affection on church property. He said the church will spend resources to fight legal battles to prevent all of that. I didn't vocally respond to that statement as I was surprised he would mention something like that to me as a tithe-paying father of a gay son. It seemed like a provocative and challenging thing to say to me, not a loving one, something that had actually nothing to do with me. I asked him if it was okay that I hoped for change in the church's position on gay marriage, even though I didn't agitate for it, and even though I always stayed within bounds when when publicly teaching or speaking with anyone in the capacity of my calling. I told him that the Savior may have provided an example of it being okay to ask if suffering can be avoided by asking if the cup could pass from him so his suffering didn't have to happen. So I asked if maybe I don't need to feel guilty for asking if it's possible that a change occur in our doctrine so the suffering of LGBTQ church members can stop sometime before God just works it all out after they're dead. I asked if it was okay for me to hope and pray that such a change will come quickly so people's suffering can stop sooner if it's God's will. He told me that it was better to just have hope that the Savior will work things out somehow on a case-by-case basis after this life, not to hope that the church will ever change. I mentioned that I was always very careful about what I taught, on the topic of LGBTQ issues, I said I didn't want to be prideful and damage my spirit by trying to get out ahead of the church collectively, which I recognized was only given, uh, the revelation was only given to the topmost church leaders. He said, Cheryl and I were perhaps called by God to be Wes's parents because we're strong enough to handle the dichotomy of believing while still loving him without reservation. Um, you know, he said other people may not be as strong and I, I don't feel comfortable with that statement. I don't think that's true. I think a lot of people are are, are way stronger than we are and, and more. I think someone you know leaving the church over this issue doesn't mean that they lack strength. But anyway, um, and then most significantly, the most hurtful thing that was said was he promised me really intensely at least four times at various points during our conversation, you know, scooting forward in his chair and staring into my eyes, inches away, that I would lose Cheryl as my wife and that my family would fall apart in this life if I lost my faith. He later explained in a follow-up meeting that we had that he said that this would happen because he thought if I left the church, I would become a greater target for Satan than other people are because I have made temple covenants and served as a leader in the church. After one of the times that he gave me that warning in this interview, he said that people who leave the church aren't happy. They say they are and feel relief and happiness initially, but most of them at times uh, end up breaking major commandments that bring them misery. I told him I felt like at times, uh, rather than losing my family because of lack of faith, it seemed like the opposite was happening to me. I had to struggle harder to keep my family united because of the dichotomy for each of us between loving Wes and our respective decisions whether to stay in the church. Even though Wes has never asked any of us to leave the church, it sometimes still feels like a betrayal of our love for him to keep attending. I told the general authority that hope for change sometimes seemed like the only thing I could offer to my other kids to keep them in the church because they love their brother so much. And then at the end of the interview when we were standing he shook my hand and said looking me in the eyes that everything he told me in our conversations was said by him as a special witness of christ which is a title for uh general authorities and uh that's that's how the interview ended and then we brought cheryl into the into the room and i i regret not having stopped the interview and brought Cheryl in sooner you know as Wes's mom she deserved to be there as soon as the conversation started happening about Wes um I was a little overwhelmed by what was happening and um I just I, I wish I wouldn't have left her out in the hall worrying for so long
2: yeah that's okay but um I think it's at this point in the story um whenever we're retelling it to someone and they hear that the door is finally opened and that i'm allowed to go in they all go oh boy <laughs> um but it's that's
1: what our kids said when we told yeah them just they're
2: like oh, oh boy um which i don't they, know why well, i mean, they know you're a mama yeah you a so, mama dragon yeah. yeah um so at that point i was allowed to finally go into the room um and the minute i saw evan's face i could tell something had happened um i could just read that he wasn't he looked uncomfortable he didn't look happy um and so right away i kind of said was this about less and um i think like evan kind of bit his lip and you know the general authority invited me to sit down and at that point i just started crying i said i don't understand why our family is being judged for our son, um, being gay. Um, the general authority then said, you know, I'm late to this meeting. Um, I think that maybe your husband can calm you down and talk things over with you. And then we'll, we'll all meet again after the meeting is over. Um, so at that point he left the room and went to, um, the leadership meeting that had already been going on for about half an hour, maybe 45 minutes at this point. Um, and then I guess Evan and I, um, Evan kind of caught me up when we were just the two of us in the room about everything that the general authority had said to him. And yeah. Um,
1: I am super glad that Cheryl saw the pain in my eyes when she came in the room. Um, you know, I, I've always looked to Cheryl as somebody who's helped me find more love. I mean, I'm I'm the analytical guy who gets there eventually, but she just knew instinctively that I was hurting. And I had, I had gotten to the point where um, I knew that I had to make a decision about whether to continue serving in this calling because the general authority was comfortable he said at the end of the interview he's comfortable extending me the calling i feel like i had gotten to the point where i didn't need to decide to, oh, to have wes i i didn't need to feel bad about wes even though the general authority was basically asking me to it seemed like he was asking us to publicly express um disappointment
2: yeah, about no wes's
1: li- life mm-hmm. and remorse about him leaving the church mm-hmm. and. I didn't feel that way. And I told him I didn't feel that way. And, and we had gotten to kind of a place where we agreed to disagree and he felt comfortable still issuing me the calling because he knew and believed me when I said I wouldn't teach anything unauthorized while I was in the calling. So I, I was okay generally with that, but I still felt really uncomfortable and didn't like feeling like I had to be inauthentic uh, about my feelings for Wes and his decision. Um, and I'm glad that Cheryl came into the room and called me on it, um, and and not not called me in a negative way, but just identified it. You um, know, I didn't feel like I was. It was just wasn't. It's not right that parents are asked to feel that way. We shouldn't have to feel like we are loving our gay kid, even though he's left the church. There shouldn't be any even though. In that, in that sentence, uh, you know, I, a lot of parents love their gay kids and, and, and recognize that they're outside the church and they're doing, you know, good things and living healthy, productive lives and everything. But when the church doctrine teaches that their healthy, productive lives and good, strong marriages and families are sinful... And the parents still want to believe in the church and 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 stay active. And their participation in the church it sends a strong signal that they're loving their kid, even though they're not in the church. And I I didn't want that. I I, you know, I don't want to love. You know, none of my kids are left-handed, but if they were, how silly would that be if I loved them even though they wrote with their left hand? And with human intimacy being so much more important than handedness, I mean, it just doesn't companionship so vital to happiness in life and hope being so important to to, to happiness in life. I just, I, I wasn't feeling right about the idea, the, the suggestion the general authority is making that I should love less, you know, even though he's outside the church. I, I just couldn't do that. There wasn't, that wasn't in our hearts. So when Cheryl came in and we talked, we left and
2: um yeah, we decided to basically leave the yeah. church building and kind of go home to have a period Decompress, of yeah. uh, cooling down, I would say, because I, I was pretty angry, um, especially when I found out, you know, the general authority had kind of threatened Evan with some things that I, I I think could be called ecclesiastical abuse to say, to use that, you know, that I would leave him in this life and that he, he'd lose his family. I just don't think that ever works well um, in any religion to kind of put the fear of uh, God and people. I, I I believe strongly it's way more about love than about fear, um, religion in general. And so I, I didn't appreciate that. And I just said, you know, I'm done. I've given, we've given so much over the years. I just, we need to be, we need to process this. So we left the church building and came home for a while. And then yeah. Evan decided to go back.
1: I said to Cheryl, I said, how many opportunities do you have to talk to you know, two general authorities in person, and express your pain about the doctrine on LGBT issues. And I just didn't want to lose that opportunity to express, you know, my feelings and my thoughts, and all the share all the research I had done and and studied about how, you know, it's it's. So I went back to the church, and I actually had a good conversation with both general authorities together. Um, and you know, the the tone had changed. They were very. Um, they're listening yeah i think they Uh, realized
2: that maybe i think the one general authority had realized that maybe he had come across as too harsh
1: yeah and 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 he 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 apologized for for that and and we we had a good conversation they told me at the beginning of the conversation um that they had had to decide to issue this calling to someone else I, i they didn't actually meet with that uh brother until the next morning um but because we had left they didn't feel like it was appropriate to have me continue serving which was interesting because at one point during the interview that he had with us he said that he came to minister more to our family than to organize than to reorganize the state presidency so it was a little bit perplexing to me to hear that that had happened without you know any follow-up ministering to to us to find out why we had left the church building and what we were actually feeling um but uh, in any event, I I, I talked in that follow up meeting about how you know there's no scriptures or doctrine that that shows that procreation in the in the afterlife in the celestial kingdom has to be only between man and woman. There's scriptures that talk about how you that that is definitely one of the things that will happen there, but there's nothing that explicitly says you know same sex couples can't be in heaven um that i pointed to an article by taylor petrie who you've had on on your show on on the podcast here richard just recently um an article he wrote called the uh toward a post heterosexual uh, theology um that it talks about how you know feelings um the, the four in the church uh were not the way they are now that there were uh same gender ceilings that have been done before. The earth was created by by two male beings and they created it, forming it from existing matter, which is a similar way that the spirits were formed from existing intelligence. And so, you know, I don't think, you know, Taylor is trying to propose new doctrine or anything, but that article it really resonated with me when I read it so long ago. And I shared my thoughts on that with the general authorities. And I just said, you know, we just don't know what the doctrine is. And how helpful would it be if instead of over the pulpit, we were talking about, you know, the how gay or LGBT people who leave the church are, are going to end up in, in lower kingdoms and how it's going to be, they're, they're not going to be with with their families if we would just actually say, we don't know. You know, just that doesn't even require a revelation. That's just am- ambiguity that allows for some peace to be given. It's, it's kind of like how you know women in the church who are justifiably worried about being involved in polygamous relationships in eternity, they have some statements from, from general authorities and from other places that show that we don't know if that's going to happen. There's, there's kind of some mainstream thought on, on that that it's a question, but there's no such question for, for LGBT people. They, they are facing the prospect of having who they are changed after this life and, and like trying to accept a traumatic experience in this life as something that's going to be heavenly joy in the next life is so hard and so I, I had a good conversation with the with those general authorities after and i'm glad i went back they asked me at the end of that if we would come back if cheryl would be willing to talk to them again and i said i would talk to her and, and find out so i came home and asked and she said she would be and so we met with them actually again um after the general session of uh, state conference the next morning. Um, I bore my testimony in that session cause I was getting released and just I actually Kate in that, in that session talked about how Wes was gay. And, um, I think that threw everybody for a bit of a loop, but I, I just said I loved him and I love, I know that God loved him as he is. Um, and that unconditional love was the savior's plan. Um, and I knew that to be true. Um, i didn't i didn't talk about anything the general authority talked about with me and and i was very tried to keep it all very respectful and it was a really hard experience i think i was crying pretty much the whole meeting in front of everybody in that
2: Mm -hmm. session well that saturday night we i really didn't sleep um and i just remember getting up the next morning early and making some notes about what i wanted to say when i when i had the opportunity to meet with both those general authorities um and I actually invited the outgoing state president and the incoming state president into that meeting as well, just so they could hear it. Because I really wanted um, all the leaders to learn something from our experience, even though it was so traumatic and painful. I thought at least if they can hear, maybe they won't repeat these mistakes with another family or someone else. Um, and so in that meeting, I mean, it was, it was probably an hour we were in there. Yeah. I just kind of bore my Heart to them, I said, you know, in my seminary class alone, um, I had 12 kids, and I think 10 of them either had a sibling who was gay, um, who were or or who were LGBTQ. Um, they were themselves, or they had a, a relative who is. 10 out of 12 of those kids. And I said, How can you expect the younger generation um, you know, to stay in the church when we're, we're, we're having these, you know, it's, you're making it extremely hard for families who are trying to do their best. Um, again, we had given countless, um, hours and, you know, money, everything we've given to the church over the years, um, service, all those things. Um, and then you're asking us to basically be ashamed of our gay son and to, you know, publicly say we're not happy for him, or kind of you know almost disown him. And I also just you know told them that I feel like the the church is going to have a big problem if they don't start um, reaching out to the younger generation because they're just far more loving and accepting um, than than we are. Any even I would well older generation for sure, but even our generation. Um, and I guess I also just. Um, kind of was mostly upset by them too. be upset by the fact that we got questioned for basically having a gay inactive son where other people who have inactive children are not questioned the way we were. Um, I asked them, um, you know, how many men put Evan's name on a piece of paper who they, you know, when you're asked who you think should be the new state president. Um, and of course the response was a lot of people did. So I, I said to them, I said, would that indicate them that he's not a, you know, he's going against the doctrine of the church? I, I don't think so. Um, and they were silent to that. They acknowledged that, you know, they have hadn't heard anything negative about Evan. It was only good things. And so it's just, it was a very painful and hurtful um, weekend for us. And again, this is where I started to kind of lose um, my faith in the church to have leaders um who could like empathize with what we're going through and also not just what we're going. And I, I hate even saying what we're going through. Cause to me, it's not even that we're going through anything. We just have a gay son. It shouldn't be anything extra. Um, right. yeah, it should just be that he's our son and he's,
1: if it weren't, yeah. if it weren't for, I mean, I hate to say this this way, but if it weren't for church teachings, mm-hmm. this him being wouldn't gay be wouldn't be issue. a
2: big deal. So mm. it's, it, it was just a really hard weekend for us. Um, For me, I, um, you know, I think for the next week or two, I I really didn't sleep or eat much. um, And I just stewed. I was so upset because in my life personally, I feel like I've made a ton of sacrifices at the detriment of, you know, extended family members, different things to stay active and just do exactly what I was supposed to do. And then I I felt like, so this is how they're repaying us is by basically saying, you know, um, now we're not good enough to serve because we have a gay son and we're happy that he's gay and we're happy that he's left the church to find, to do something else. Um, and it really bothered me that other people who have inactive children are not quite, we're not, we're not and are not questioned the way we were questioned for having um, a gay son. Um, you know, and if you want to get back to when they were saying the law of chastity is a law of chastity, I said, well, what's the difference if someone has a child that's living out of wedlock with someone um, that they're breaking the law of chastity, just like my son is breaking the law of chastity. If he, you know, has um, a relationship with another man. So I don't understand why there's this double standard kind of for parents that are already having a hard time with the dichotomy of church teachings and, you know, keeping their family um, intact. um, Why we have this. So after a week of stewing about it and not eating and thinking, um, I typed a very long Facebook post um, that just talked about our journey, and for the first time, I was open and just um, didn't go into details about what had happened that weekend, but kind of went into details about you know things we had done for the church and just about Wes. Um, and I that Facebook post actually um, was how we met Richard. Richard was mm-hmm. reached out. Um, and came out to Boston after that to meet with us because he was touched by that post. And so I'm I'm really grateful I wrote it. Um, It was disappointing to me to to see how many of our active church friends did not reach out, didn't like the post, were kind of silent. I don't know if it's because they didn't know what to say. Um, That was super hurtful. Um, That's been something I've learned in the past, well, since October. I've really seen who has our backs and who doesn't and also just who I guess was maybe I I hate saying fake friend, church friend kind of thing versus who has been our real friends. Um, But I have to say, too, that that Facebook post um, has led me to dozens of people who were either closeted LGBTQ members who have a child who is or who have um, who are out open and just reached out because they appreciated my post. And so it really got us into this new space right. of being an open LGBTQ ally. And, you know, Evan and I are both on Facebook a lot. We both have rainbow um, right. around our pictures and stuff. So that's kind of been fun to, even though we've lost a lot of our, you know, faithful church friends, we gained a, a new group of um, friends because of um, we, we all have LGBTQ children, and we have that in common.
1: Right. And then I, just to kind of close out that section here, I I a few days later uh, from the experience, just had a really clear thought come to my mind about why this might have happened. And, and you know, I, I think in a tiny, tiny way, it helped me relate to Wes um, a little bit better, having to choose between being authentic in how I love my family versus continuing to serve in the church is a choice that Wes had to make too, um, authentic in how he's going to love and have a family versus staying in the church. So, you know, just that tiny bit of empathy, I'm grateful that the whole experience happened. You know, the general authority apologized in that meeting that Cheryl was into and, um, I accept his apology and I, I, and I'm glad it happened. I, I'm glad Wes is gay, and some people don't understand why we say that. But we have learned so much about mm-hmm. love and about the Savior and what it means to love unconditionally, like He does. Um, and I never would have learned those things otherwise. And I I would never want Wes to be straight. He he is who he is, and he's it's beautiful and it's amazing the the things that he's taught us. Um, so. Anyway, I'm sorry we talked for a really long time there, Richard.
0: <laughs> I think our listeners are really glad to hear all that, that story. And um, just a couple of thoughts. I love you said some really interesting things, um, if I remember right, about hoping for change, why you continue to support current doctrine. And I love the idea that we need to create space. And you even, I think, said your own children um, – sort of their ability to potentially stay in the church is just this idea that things might change. And so I think we need to be less certain perhaps and and still sustain and support our leaders, but I think it's okay to hope for change and pray for change. Um, We've seen changes in a lot of areas in our church, and um, I like that idea. The second thing I like is the idea that me as a committed Latter-day Saint can sit with you in your pain as you share this, it's not a false dichotomy where I, if I honor this difficult experience and validate how you feel and not try to dismiss it, um, that somehow if I do that, I'm, I'm not supportive of the church. I can do both. I can support the church and also um, sit with you in this really difficult experience and honor the pain and validate the pain. and Because um, that's how I think how we minister to people that have pain. And I call this church-generated pain where it's come from an internal source that th- it should be a safe sport source. I love that you haven't named the GA. And I think that's just an, a measure of grace on your part Where um, in your book and in our podcast. And I just reckon, I hope our listeners recognize what a great job you're trying to do here of talk about this experience um, and even um, but not necessarily just want to, you know, bring ill will or hard feelings directly to this general authority. And I just think that's a sign of grace and a sign of your great Christ-like hearts. I also I also sense that sometimes we create this feeling in the church where um, parents need to choose between supporting their gay child who's leaving the church and the church, and then we lose the whole family. And I believe, as you know, that we need to extend an uh, extra circle, a measure of love to families if their LGBTQ child is leaving the church and and honor the personal revelation that parents are receiving for the path for their children and not second-guess that or not feel like someone's looking over their shoulder judging them or saying they're going to lose their family. We don't know that, um, as you know, and as you've taught. So I think And and that's not a change in doctrine. That is our doctrine, just to put our arms around LDS families if they've got a child leaving the church and and continue to talk to them, ask them to share their experience and just have them feel increased love from their ward family instead of people pulling back, because that's how I think we lose whole families. So that's a really helpful segment for all of us that just want to understand how to better meet the needs of LDS families.
1: Yeah, yep. that's that's the reason why we want to share. We thought and, and really just had a hard time deciding whether to come public and talk about this. But I, creating more sensitivity amongst leadership and amongst general membership, um, is the driving reason for sharing the story. So and and I know the general authority had, you know, like all our teachers, all of our leaders who have said harmful things about LGBT people in the past over all these decades, you know, they're not um intentionally trying to hurt people but there's a a real sense of um not wanting to have the status quo be threatened and not wanting to have you know the, any any sort of changes occur that would seem unauthorized I, I don't really know what it is but there's there's, there's things that uh, we need to ha- open our minds to so that we can be more loving. And we're hoping that, that by sharing all this story that, that can be achieved in like some way.
0: That. I sometimes think of a really simple change. I would assume there's members that hope one day that coffee and tea are not against our word mm-hmm. of wisdom as they continue to not drink coffee and tea and we wouldn't throw everybody out of the church that is obeying the word of wisdom that kind of privately hopes that that part of the word of wisdom might be left up to individual members. And so I think that's what you're trying to help us understand here is um, creating space. One heart, one mind doesn't mean from Moses that we all have that scripture in Moses that we all have uniform feelings about every aspect of the church, but we are united in one heart and one mind by wanting to, help others come into Christ and keep our family circled together. Let's go on to the next segment. Um, you're, you are working on a book. It's a book that's finished. Um, the title of the book is Gay Latter-day Saints Crossroads, My Journey, Your Journey, and a Scripture-Based Path Forward. Um, so talk about this book, um, why you are written the book, um, and just introduce the book to our listeners, Evan.
1: Sure. Um, I basically took the time I was using in my calling before uh, over these last several months and also obviously with some COVID downtime and time I've been saving and not commuting anymore uh, to just try to write down all my thoughts. I I initially started doing it as a post. I wanted to do a post similar to what Cheryl's Facebook post was. Um, And I found, I don't know if it's the (laughs) the lawyer in me, I, I couldn't leave. the <laughs> I couldn't leave some things unsaid. I, I ended up wanting to address every argument I'd ever heard about uh, why doctrine couldn't change, about how this would never change, um, and I, I also wanted to create more sensitivity, uh, like we talked about, and, and I wanted to also make some amends for the mistakes I had made as a leader. I know, you know, I had I. Was not a perfect leader. I know. I we all have our biases and our our uh, things that make us act in certain ways that that aren't as loving as we should. And so I'm hoping that this book is is a helpful way to show my love to uh, all of the LGBTQ members of the church. Um, it's not. Uh, is I'm a first time author. There are other people in this space uh, that are way more talented than I am, you know, I, I think a lot of my thoughts are similar to the thoughts of uh, people who have written before, like Carolyn Pearson, or Bryce Cook, who wrote that great essay, uh, Mormon LGBT questions, uh, you can find that at mormonlgbtquestions.com. And like I mentioned, Taylor Petrie before, and Derek Knox, you know, those, those a lot of their thoughts are, are big influences in what I've written. But I also think I propose several new ideas as well, um, especially about ways that the church could could change without a revelation being needed. Um, you know, we, we, there's so many ways that the doctrine could could just become less uh, rigid. But that doesn't require a formal revelation from God. It just requires us to say we don't know. Um, and there are, I, I also talk about ways the doctrine could absolutely change to allow for gay ceilings., um, you know, we don't know, uh, who we, we have you know dead deceased women who have been married to more than one man over the course of their lifetime are sealed to all those men and and we don't have a problem sealing them but for some reason we we think cause, and some of that sealing may have to be undone after this life we don't know i, I don't know who's going to be sealed to whom but we we seem okay with that ambiguity of sealing people together who may not end up be be together in, in the eternities but for some reason we have a problem Sealing two men together or two women together, even if God might think that they may not end up together. Or maybe we don't trust what the scriptures say when it says whatever you seal on earth will be bound in heaven. Maybe God actually is trusting us to just seal the entire human race together. And it's not so much a matter of of couples as it is every family being linked together and having an unending chain. And, And there's a lot of you know doctrinal thoughts along those lines, you know, where we got. The doctrine against uh, same-sex marriage it's not in any formal revelation. I talk about how the scriptures nowhere prevent uh, gay marriage. The proclamation on the family doesn't specifically actually prevent it either. It says uh, powers of procreation can only be used between husband and wife, but it doesn't, you know, that's, procreation is not being, those powers not being used in, in gay sexual behavior. So, you know, if you really read it closely, I wonder if there was, inspiration behind, and we know that some leaders have talked about inspiration being involved in the proclamation. Uh, maybe that inspiration was actually to have the wording be such that it could be interpreted in the future in a less, uh, you know, hurtful way and that, that could allow for some space for these things to be added as extra. You know, I, it talks in the proclamation about how straight marriage between man and wife is essential to God's plan. But I look at that and I say, well, is, you know, it's like saying if uh, trees are essential for a forest, that's true, but it doesn't mean you can't have plants and other animals that also are essential, and that make it more beautiful and everything better. You know, I think diversity is one of those beautiful things that helps us love other people more. And I would hate for diversity not to exist in the celestial kingdom. If I'm lucky enough to be there, I, I want to see gay couples there. And I want to see different 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 types of people of all sorts that, that make us love one another with open hearts better than we could otherwise. So um, that's a really kind of broad overview of what uh, the book addresses, just kind of how doctrinal change can come. It tells our story a lot, like we told it here. Um, I've had some pretty amazing experiences in getting the book pulled together. I, I did an initial draft and sent it around to some folks and, um, got connected with uh, a great writer, Marcy McPhee, uh, who lives in Houston. She's helped me edit it, um, and done a great job of making it sound less like a lawyer's brief and more like (laughs) a a document that people might want to read. So it's been a great experience. And I, I hope, I hope, you know, even if just a few people's hearts are changed, that would be, that would be amazing. Um, One, uh, I'll share a couple quick quotes that are in there that I loved. Um, One is by Elder James E. Talmage: "The canon of Scripture is still open; many lines, many precepts are yet to be added. Revelations surpassing in importance and glorious fullness any that has been recorded is yet to be given to the Church and declared to the world." You know that was in 1899. That was after most of the, the sections of the Doctrine and Covenants have already been revealed. And you think about that and you say, revelations that are beyond all of those are yet to still be declared. And this canon of scripture is still open. That's that's pretty amazing. And then Elder McConkie, uh, the last word has not been spoken on any subject. There are more things we do not know about the doctrines of salvation than there are things we do know. So I, I, I'm hoping that, people can read the book and, and place, place their faith in Christ and in, in ongoing revelation, no matter what we hear from any you know church leaders or anything, we should never, ever give up our hope. And I, I lay that out um, and try to make a case for that. Not, not that I'm trying to say I should determine what the doctrine is, but just that we should always hope that there's change. I think to love our LGBTQ siblings really the way that we should be loving them as Christ loves them. We have to hope for equality in the church. We have to hope that they have the exact same privileges, joys, and happiness that straight members of the church are, are being offered because, uh, you know, otherwise the, they're all are not like unto God. You know, the scripture says all are alike unto God. And if we're not giving them that equality, then that scripture is not true. So, um, our, the, the, the site was at uh, the website. The book is available on PDF. You can download it for free on galdscrossroads.org, or uh, you can get you can just surf on that site and navigate the, the book itself. The book is set up with a bunch of questions. The table of contents has dozens of questions um, that you can, you can click on and go to your favorite sections. I don't know if you know how many people will read the entire thing cover to cover. I hope people do. I think it tells a, a good story. But if there's particular sections of interest um, you know, that, that you can use to provide resources to family members or to others who are questioning and having uh, uh, struggles understanding how uh, the doctrine might change or how we should think about things uh, with an open mind, then I'm, I'm hoping you can kind of use the website to share uh, bits and pieces of it with people um, as they're helpful. And uh, our son, Owen, uh, our second son, he actually designed the book cover uh, that's going to be in the PDF file. It's just an ebook. It's a, I'm calling it a free navigable ebook. Um, that's uh, a, an image. Owen does a lot of photography and graphic design and stuff. So he designed that cover. and then Weston knows how to do website design and he designed the whole website and kind of built it all out. So it's been a bit of a family project. and Cheryl was a big reviewer and editor as well. So it's been a fun process.
0: I love that the whole family's involved. Cheryl, how do you feel about the book?
2: Um, well, it's been a labor of love for sure. Um, it was, it's funny because in the beginning, like Evan said, you know, he just sat down and this one page thing turned into, uh, how, I don't even know how many pages it is now. Well,
1: it's around 200 pages.
2: Okay. 200 pages. <laughs> um, it's gotten some attention from people. We actually um, met with a general authority in Salt Lake City that it had come to his attention and he wanted to talk to us about the book and gave us some, um, well, gave Evan some recommendations about how to maybe edit it and just some, some thoughts that we um, appreciated very much. Not that I, I want to church, be clear, though. It's not yeah. church.
1: Yeah, de- not you won't find it a Deseret book. <laughs> um, it's not church approved. But I, I did take some feedback that he had given and, and tried to really change the tone. I think initially it was more sad or, or painful and anguish ridden. Uh, late, it had a lot of that tone to it. And I, I'm hoping it's more hopeful now. And I think, you know, Marcy's help, helped a lot with that too.
2: Right. Um, but he joked, uh, he was an attorney himself before he was called as a general authority. And he joked that I should have um, been like the judges and given Evan a page limit on, you know, what to, <laughs> what to write, because it did, it, it is very long, but um, we hope that the way we've done it on the website where you can click around and you don't have to read the whole thing in one sitting will help people. And really, again, just want it to be a resource if people have questions, um, you know, and are Googling some of these things that it comes up and maybe it will help yeah. people in that way.
1: I have hundreds of websites that I have on an index that uh, people can use as resources for doing a lot of research. I mean, I, this is years and years of research that I just decided to put into one place. So. Right.
2: Um, but yeah, I, I, kind of laugh. When I was like, you know, don't, don't mess with the lawyer because you'll get this 200 page document in response to whatever um, our kind of experience that happened. Um, But I really, you know, I'm proud of Evan. I, it's it's amazing actually it's amazing to me how much time he was spending on his church calling um i didn't realize how much time um he was spending every week away from the family doing his calling faithfully um and you know like i said he like he said he put all this um into writing the book and now we've got this book that um has taken a long time but it's i'm really proud of him for doing that and obviously doing something he you know, he's not a writer, so it's something new for him um, to kind of add to his resume now that he wrote this book. Um, I guess Evan kind of wanted me just to talk about, you know, some things from the book or my feelings about um, um, kind of like do's and don'ts of what to tell parents of LGBTQ children. Um, again, because we had that negative experience with the general authority and have had a lot of um, well-meaning members reach out to us and try to make things better um but inadvertently in their um you know I think they all have um good intentions but inadvertently they end up kind of hurting us more so I thought it might take a few minutes just to talk about some do's and don'ts if you have friends who have a child who has come out uh, maybe what not to say um what one of the things in church and I guess this doesn't necessarily this isn't necessarily just for lgbtq um uh children but um i have always um had a hard time with how the church always puts out holds out these amazing stories of someone who you know crossed the the planes barefoot and blind and you know lost all their children and yet they still didn't lose their faith and were able to do it and although i you know really do want to um recognize that those things are amazing. I think that we have to take into consideration the average person could probably not have done that. Um, so I have a hard time when, um, other people will come to me with, uh, send me articles or posts about, you know, um, well, this guy is gay and look at him. He's still active in the church and he's doing X, Y, or Z. Um, or, you know, um, I know in the recent ensign, there was a article about someone who, Had left um, and then come back to the church. Um, You know, and you get well-meaning people sending you all these things saying, look, they can do it. So West can do that too. And I think we just have to really recognize that although you're trying to be helpful, that can almost be more hurtful, just because it's not like um, we haven't seen those articles. And it's not like we haven't heard about those people. Um, I I think of Josh Weed often. I know for a while he was kind of like the poster child of look, he's made a same, um, you know, he's same sex attracted, but married to a woman, and they're having a family, and it's working out. And um, we all know now that, you know, obviously, didn't hold up long term, they've gotten divorced. Um, And so I think that we have to be extremely careful as church members to not hold up other examples of, oh, look at this person did it, or look at that person did it. um, Because I think that 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 just can be very harmful um, to 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 our LGBTQ children and then parents of those children. Um, I also think that um, we need to um, just be careful too with the doctrine. I've had a lot of people try to explain to me, you know, well, we don't know this, or um, they'll try to explain the doctrine to me like I haven't heard it before, I haven't studied it, and I have probably studied it a hundred times more than they have because it is uh, personal to me. Um, So I kind of get upset when people will approach me and say, have you thought about this or have you read this scripture or have you done this? Um, Again, I think that's like kind of a dangerous path um, to go on because it would, you're assuming that we haven't studied or we haven't um, learned um, the doctrine the way that you have as um a person with maybe just straight children um, and then the other thing i just think people need to um every time you get up to teach a lesson you just need to be um cognizant of people in the room um, and this again this could be applied to not even just the lgbtq issue but anyone um, people have been abused divorced um you know, just the whole gamut of things. Um, And I think we just need to be more sensitive when we're teaching things that might be hurtful to um, not even the minority. I would say sometimes it's the majority in the room. I think we have to just be more sensitive and careful of what we're teaching and try to come up with creative ways to obviously still teach the doctrine, but just also be really sensitive and careful to who we're, um, teaching in the room. Um, there were several times when I was seminary teacher where I would feel, um, have a hard time teaching certain things, knowing the kids so well and knowing what, um, their personal situations were. I would have a hard time, um, you know, for instance, say teaching about, um, the eternal family when some kids are from divorced families or some kids had, Um, single moms or whatever. Um, It's just a, it's a hard thing. And I think we need to, as a church, try to be more sensitive to that. But I think you can really start at the ward level because that's where, you know, the majority of teaching goes on is at the ward level. So I think that that's, if I had any advice, those would kind of be the advice to to people I would give is just be very careful when you're sharing stories, um, when you're teaching lessons, that sort of thing. Um, And then to like assume that, you know, again, we've had a lot. Um we've had a gay son for our whole life. So we probably know a lot more on the topic than you do. Um, we have got some well-meaning people sending um just totally inaccurate statistical documents to him. And you pseudo know.
1: pseudoscience articles.
2: Yeah, and just um I think it's just again, well-meaning, but you just um until you you actually have your own gay child, I don't know that you really are qualified to be telling um, us how to parent that child, so yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: There's a section in the book that has 10 do's and 10 don'ts for what to say or not to say to LGBTQ members and their families. Um, so I, I hope that if someone reads any section, I hope that's at least the section they might take a look at.
2: Hmm.
0: Thank you, Cheryl and Evan, for that segment. Um, I love just your personal revelation to where this book has ended up. And I just believe that you're on God's errand, and I believe that you've been guided. And I love that it's not a physical book. And I love this in our day of technology, the way you're using PDF and an indexable PDF with sections. And, and that it's just kind of this living document that can be updated at times. So I just think that that is going to be so helpful and so needed. And the scope of that is very, very helpful. As we both know, there's a lot of parents that um, begin this road and they need something like you put together. So I encourage all of our listeners to go to gayldscrossroads.org and check that out um i love richard
1: can i can i take one second i know we've had a really long podcast but i'd be remiss if i didn't likewise tell everyone to definitely buy your book when it comes i know you were kind enough and we've taken an advanced look at it it's amazing your book that's going to come out in september well thank you so amazing um so many stories that are just powerful and and will just touch people's hearts and 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 I, i help them love more like the savior loves so that's Thank I'm, you. I'm looking looking forward to buying many copies and sharing them with a lot of people. <laughs> yes, definitely. <laughs>
0: well, and for our listeners, I mean, I look at when I see someone new come in the space or a new podcast or a new book, I don't feel territorial. I'm not trying to own this space or be the podcast or the book guy. Um, this is a collaborative effort. So I'm just thrilled when somebody um, else joins the space or there's another podcast. So I want to use my platform, which is really, um, only exists because of you listeners to amplify everybody's story so that they can all do better. And so thank you for that. Um, I just, there was some beautiful things you said, the analogy of the forest. I've, I've been, it's similar to what I've wondered if, you know, my marriage can stand on its own merits and, but if there's just additional trees that can be added to the forest, it doesn't change my, my marriage or change the trees in the forest. There's just, other things that can be added as we seek more light and understanding that doesn't really cost us anything. We don't sell out anything or lose anything for our core members in straight marriages. We just are able to understand how other people can fit into our gospel and be members of our church. I look at Wes and all I my experiences with them is listening to his homecoming talk, but you know, we're we're worse off that Wes doesn't have a place in our church and hundreds and hundreds of LGBTQ people that feel like their path is to step away. We, we're, we're losing really, really good people. And then we often lose whole families because they recognize that their family member, who's actually an awesome person with so much to contribute to society in our church, doesn't have a place in our church if, unless they, like you pointed out, are celibate or in a mixed-orientation marriage. So it just helps us understand the complexities well, we've got one segment to go, listeners, and um, some of these podcasts go longer, but that's okay. This is my experience is you um, listen to the whole podcast. So there's no reason to force a podcast into a, a set time period. That's not the format that I'm trying to create here. So the last segment is where are we now? Um, where are you and your kids um, and with each each now with respect to their faith? Cheryl, why don't you go first?
2: Okay. Well, I have, um, I'll just be totally honest, since October, I kind of decided um, to kind of take a little bit of a church break. I um, thought I would give myself until Christmas time to see how it went. I just needed a breather. I needed to kind of process what had happened to us, kind of, um, yeah, and and I, I was a little angry. I was angry at the time just with... Again, so many years of so much effort, and I felt like it was just all crushed by, um, you know, um, that experience. Um, so I, um, I'm st- well. Then of course, COVID happened. So we've we've yeah. been on a, a longer church break, I guess, than I thought was going to happen. But um, to be honest, I've really found out more about myself with um on Sundays oftentimes Evan and I will go for hikes um sometimes we actually go with a gay friend of ours um yeah. we join him and we've gone all over New England on beautiful hikes um and I found that that's just that's honestly in nature is where I felt God the most um the past few years um and it's just really helped me kind of get back to root my roots of what um, how I feel about God, how he feels about me, um, just trying to get more basic and trying to um, kind of not push the church to the side, but for now just taking a little bit of a break from our traditional church. And obviously, I mean, I guess I don't want to say maybe God agree with me because COVID happened, but like <laughs> um, I'm kind of laughing because, you know, my – till Christmas turned into a little bit longer. Um, so I don't know what my path forward is. I, I, I'm really happy now. I just feel relaxed. I feel relieved. I feel less pressure. Um, I, I feel like there was always a dark cloud at church. It always, Sundays were a source of anxiety for me. I didn't ever really enjoy pulling into the church parking lot. Um, it was always just way more stressful. Um, some of that had to do with when I have young kids and wrangling them all. And I'm sure every mother in here is going, uh-huh, uh-huh. Because especially when your husband is bishop or in, uh, counselor in the bishopric or in the state presidency and you're sitting alone with the kids and, the, and you're going, why am I doing this? Um, it was hard. It's hard. And it was source of, again, frustration, anxiety, um, different things. So I... I've really enjoyed this time um, to just kind of step back and reevaluate my relationship with God and to just kind of um, see where it's going to go. So I feel like that dark cloud has kind of lifted for me, which has been surprising and, and good at the same time. Um, Our kids are all good. Um, As we said, Wes has kind of been doing his own thing and he's been doing that for a while and he's happy and really enjoying college and, Um, of course, COVID has made it so they all came home. Um, we've had all four kids under the same roof since, um, mid, um, March now, which has been, um, really fun because we've had a lot of extra family time that we just wouldn't have had otherwise. Um, so that's been nice. Um, Owen has, um, struggled a little bit. He did a first year at BYU and has decided that BYU is not the school for him. So he recently, um, transferred to Bentley university, which is here in Massachusetts. Um, and he's going to attend there in the fall if, um, you know, obviously permitting that they reopen, um, because of COVID, um, And then the girls have, we, you know, as parents, we said, we're not making, they're all old enough to kind of make their own decisions. And we weren't going to force them either way as to what we were doing. Um, And the girls have also decided kind of to take a step back from church and um, kind of just see how things go. Um, They have some issues, not so much with LGBTQ issues. They do, all of our kids do. Um, But the girls also are feeling like um, women don't have much of a, and young women, um, don't have as much of a voice at church. And that's something, um, you know, that's bothering them everywhere else in society. Women are treated equal to men and they feel like the church is the one place in their life that they just aren't, um, valued as much as at school at their other during their other activities, just, um, you know, um, that sort of thing. So, so for now, we're all happy, um, but we're all kind of doing our own path. Um, Evan has, um, decided i'll let him talk more about what he's doing but um our marriage is really good um people have asked if because i've taken a step away if that means things you know we're suffering or if things are hard at home and i actually have to say they've been better at home and since we've gone through this experience um i think we're just just way more empathetic and understanding to one another um not just like the kids to each other and to us parents us as parents but also Evan and I, um, as husband and wife, we just, you know, truly just want what's best for everyone. And it's, um, you know, we all still obviously believe in God and, um, you know, hope that at some point, maybe we'll be able to, my path will cross with the church's path again. But I just, at this point right now, I, am just not exactly sure.
1: Yeah. Um, <laughs> if I were to describe where I'm at i i'm still committed to attending church um i feel like i have a little bit of a little bit more privilege um and i i use that term meaning that i i have the 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 pain and the hurt that cheryl's describing doesn't quite affect me the same way you know i i am a man and I'm straight and I'm a former bishop and all these, you know, I I think I have a lot of, a lot of privilege that protects me from a lot of that, that dark cloud that she talked about. Um, But more importantly, I want to stay because I want to help comfort others and who, who stand in need of comfort. You know, that's a baptismal covenant I made. um, And I think that's the purest form there is to worship God is to comfort other people. And I want to try to create love where it's lacking so the church is, you know, a great place for me to do that. Ironically, because I don't feel like there's a lot of love, or I should rephrase that: there's love, but I think love can be improved when it comes to our LGBTQ brothers and sisters. Um, so I want to create that for them there uh, as much as I can. I know that I'm not going to do huge monumental things, but on a one by one basis, you know, that's how that's how the work goes forward. Um, I I don't judge my you know, Cheryl for leaving. Um, that's what she's currently decided. I, I don't judge any of my kids who are leaning in that direction as well. Um, I understand it's hard. And I, I think enduring to the end can be different for everyone. You know, when the scripture says, love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, thy mind, thy strength, that's a subjective thing. Everyone has different levels of strength, um, and I'm not. I don't think I'm stronger for staying in the church. I just think sometimes spiritual strengths are different for everybody, and some spiritual strengths are needed outside the church too. So you know, I the the straight the straight gate, which it actually means narrow gate. So it's a, it's a narrow gate and a narrow path, straight narrow path. I think it it's talked about being narrow twice because that means no one else can be on it with you. Uh, everyone's path is unique and i don't i don't judge anybody in my family for the path they've chosen and i'm i'm actually kind of glad in some ways that west has company uh walking alongside the covenant path as he does that because he he can't be on it uh given the the harm that's caused by church teachings with him being gay so i'm i'm glad that he has some company i'm i'm you know, believer that God is bigger than the church. I, I believe in the church, and I love it. And I love the people in the church. But I also believe God has a much bigger, broader perspective than, than just the church. So um, I, I'm hopeful that, you know, more people can can understand the idea that the church isn't perfect. Um, you know, we all say the members aren't perfect, but the church is, but I, I would actually argue that the church itself isn't either. I mean, our our Book of Mormon. We have scriptures in the Book of Mormon where the authors talk about how there are errors in if there are errors that that are in the writings, they're errors of men, and not to condemn God for them. So though, even in our own canonized scripture, we have prophets admitting that they have maybe made mistakes in what they've written. So if it's easy for a prophet to write in canon that there's been some mistakes, why why do we have a hard time thinking that some of our modern day prophets might've, might've made a a mistake or two as well. And I, I know that people may look at me staying in the church and go, Oh, he's just staying. So he can, you know, be a thorn in the side and cause trouble and blah, blah, blah. But I don't, I don't view it that way. I, I think, you know, uh, a quote from uh, James Baldwin who, was a a black novelist, playwright, and activist. He died in 1987. Um, He said the following about America. He said, I love America more than any other country in this world. And exactly for that reason, I insist on the right to criticize her perpetually. Now, I don't don't like the word criticize for with respect to how I feel towards the church and its teachings, but I, I think the idea that we can stay members of the church disagree with some teachings of the church but still love the church and still want to be a part of it is something that we all need to be a little bit more open-minded to um you know our doctrine only requires that we believe a teaching if the spirit testifies of it we're not forced to believe anything when we're asked in the temple recommend interview if we Uh, We don't, we don't, we're not asked, do you believe that the law of chastity is perfect in the way it's taught? We're asked, do you live the law of chastity? And so I think there's a a significant difference there. And I, I view my staying in the church and being open about my disbelief in the uh, prohibition against marriage equality in the church. I, I think that that doesn't mean I'm not sustaining my leaders. I view that I can sustain my leaders even if I disagree with them by not expecting them to be perfect. That's an important way to sustain them. I also sustain them by letting them know when and how they they hurt us or you know me. I, I when I was bishop, I liked feedback that I got. I used to ask for it sometimes in temp in tithing settlement interviews, and always struck someone. They were like, "Why are you asking me, Bishop? What you can do better? what, what is that about?" Um, and I wasn't a perfect bishop by any means, and that's why I was asking. I was a little insecure and wanted to get some feedback. And I, I have to imagine that our, our general authorities and prophets and apostles are, you know, wanting the same sort of thing. So I view that I can sustain them by actually mentioning when when I'm in pain and why, um, and if I disagree with them, I, I think you know, a, a, it's a public act is uh, of of being respectful. Um, and and understanding that they're doing their best, it, I can do that while I still disagree with them, I, and I think that's a really important way to sustain. So, and, and I also am hopeful as as I stay that I see bottom up change eventually come. I, I think you know the prophets' role in scripture. If you look at so many examples in scripture, the prophets' role is to hear the complaints of the marginalized and take them to God. And a hundred percent of the time that that happens in scripture, there's a change that occurs. Um, I have a, a link to a video that Derek Knox made in, in, in my book. I encourage everybody to go watch it, but he goes through the Bible and just lays out a bunch of different times where people complained about something to a prophet, the prophet prayed to God and the change came about. And I think that a good example of that is what happened with, in our church with the race and the priesthood temple ban. you know, that bottom up change came about. And I, I don't, I, I'm not out trying to. to uh, I'm not going to organize marches and and protests and try to uh, force the change. But I am going to try to speak up about how it's okay to hope for change. It's okay to talk about how you don't agree with the teaching, and it's okay to you know wish things were different publicly. And that doesn't mean that we're not sustaining. Um, it just means we're trying to be good Samaritans who see people that are hurt on the side of the road and trying to use our privilege and our, our not being hurt to try to help them. And, you know, like, like the savior taught we should. So that's a long winded way of saying where I'm at um, with, with my commitment to the church. And I'm still, uh, feel very strongly that it's, it's where God wants me to be. And I, I love the people and I, I love the church.
2: So I guess just maybe like, last thoughts for me would be that I just really hope that the church, um, gets its stuff together and really thinks about this doctrine and who they're losing because of it. And, um, you know, again, how we can be more accepting of LGBTQ, um, members. Um, you know, I think we talked about it a lot in this podcast that, you know, even in our word, I think we have about 120 active members and um i've we've had evan and i know of 10 10, in our ward who are lgbtq who have confided in us um that they are that and i just think that's that's a lot of people and if you start thinking church-wide how you know how many um how those numbers kind of like multiply that's that's a lot um and, you know, it's hurtful when you have to hear general conference talks or, you know, people, um, again, teaching just on Sundays about these issues and being um, unloving and just kind of hardcore, um, you know, reiterating things. that Again, we we all know the doctrine. I don't understand that. I don't think it really needs to be reiterated over and over and over again. We all know it. Um, so sometimes I think, you know, they're going to loot. The tr- I really hope that the church recognizes that this younger generation is just not really going to accept that. They really need to start thinking about um, these kids that are coming up that are teenagers now because I've seen it. I've seen it in my own classes and different things I've done that these kids are far more accepting and loving than any generation before. And I think that, you know, the church really needs to. Um, get on board um, and try to figure out a way to um, still be the church, but also um, just be more accepting and loving of its LGBTQ members and their parents and families. So that's, so that's what I would say.
0: That's a really good segment. Um, I'm just so deeply touched by this podcast. Um I will listen to it again. Listeners will listen to this multiple times. I hope you realize how many cool nuggets you shared, and it makes us all want to go to your book, because I know the cool things you've shared and the insightful things are part of the book. You said something that I wrote down, hopefully pretty close to to word-to-word. A a Prophets' responsibilities, hear the complaints of the marginalized and take them to God. And I wrote the word pain as part of complaints. Um, and I love that quote. And I love that so many of the younger generation, they look at their faith and, and they're sort of saying, what's it doing for the most marginalized people? Because that's who I'm the most sensitive to. And that's who my baptism covenants draw me to are the most marginalized. And so they, that really fits with what I'm seeing millennial Latter-day Saints um, that aren't LGBTQ. It's sort of what's my faith doing for those that are the most marginalized. So that's pretty powerful quote. Both of you had so many wonderful things to share. And um, I just close again with the website, gayldscrossroads.org. I think this is a beautiful family love story. I love Cheryl and Evan that you're so open where you both are with your faith and your kids. And to me, um, this is just a beautiful family love story. It's, it's what we want is families that are honest and communicate and love each other and their differences and come together and honor everybody in their differences. And to me, this is just a beautiful family success story. Um, and that's the way I look at your family As I know both of you and have sat with both of you. You're two of the finest people I know. And just deeply admire all that you're doing and your willingness to step in this space and share your voice and um, anything else either of you'd like to say before we close.
2: No, I think that's, it's great. I hope uh, everyone's not too bored listening. Yeah, we we went
1: for a long time, um, but we wanted to tell the story and I, I hope I hope people know, uh, you know, our motivation is to love and just to see the Savior's love bless so many people in their lives. Um, that's, that's what's driving everything here. So, yeah.
2: And we're thankful to you, Richard, for letting us use this platform to introduce our book and to share our story. Um, and again, you were one of the few people that reached out to me from that, um, my original Facebook post, and it meant the world that you, got on an airplane to come and see us when we really didn't have any reach out from any of our church leaders or anyone local, even, or, uh, and a lot, you know, or even our extended family. Um, so we're, we're grateful to you and you're an incredible person for doing that. Thank you. Yeah.
0: Well, I loved your Facebook post, and it was, um, great to spend time with you and on behalf of all of our listeners on the podcast, thank you, Cheryl and Evan and your four kids for, I'm being on an episode of Listen, Learn, and Love with Richard Osler.